What does it take to score in the 170s? One, your mastery of the English language. Yep. Two, your reasoning skills. Yep. And three, your willingness to work hard. Yep. But with the number of 170 plus scores on the rise in recent years, maybe we should ask, what does it take to score a 175? Hello and welcome to episode 443 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Nathan Fox. With me is Ben Olson. We are the co-founders of LSATdemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily podcast. You can be LSAT famous, share news, and ask questions on our website, thinkinglsat.com. Upcoming deadline, February 29th. Oh yeah, so like a couple days after this airs, you have to decide whether you're going to register for the April 2024 LSAT. Ben? How should people decide whether they should register for the April 2024 LSAT? Yeah, just look at your recent practice test. Have you gotten a score that you'd be happy with? And how do you decide that? You go to lsatdemon.com forward slash scholarships. You put in the scores that you're getting or hope to get and your GPA, and you see if you can go to schools for free or almost free that you'd be happy with. Perfect. And if you're Practice test scores are looking like the kind of scores that are going to get you into the right school at the right price, then go ahead and register. If you're within a few points, maybe go ahead and register. If you're 15 points away, probably don't register. Pretty simple. Um, I think it's a pretty big costly mistake, you know, just financially costly mistake that people make is they register for tests way in advance and then they find out oh i'm not actually ready for that test and then they do stupid things right they either take it when they're not prepared which is probably the worst thing you could do or they end up paying the law school admission council to move the test date which was just so unnecessary because you can always just wait to the deadline to register so don't throw money away by registering for tests way in advance Hey, so um, you said yeah. if you're within a few points, maybe go ahead and register. If you're, you know, 15 points away, then don't register. What about that middle ground? Do you have any <laughs> advice there? I don't know. I mean, it it doesn't yeah. matter that much, honestly. Like you, you'll have to. At that point, it's like, well, how much money you got? You know, if it's not life changing money to you then sometimes it can be worth it to register for the test just so that you'll have the option to take it. Yeah, and as long as you're strong enough and willing to walk away yep. if those numbers don't come to fruition, right. Right? right? Yeah. But it is an example, yet again, I mean, we we come up with examples every week on this show, it seems like, uh, where the rich do get richer always. Like, no matter what you state, you know, you can make the rules whatever you want the, the rules to be, but having money is an advantage <laughs> no matter what yeah. it's just yeah. you always have options that people without money don't have and it's not fair but that's the system we've got so if you do have you know money sitting around and if it makes sense to you and it does make sense like for the students who are paying for one-on-one -on -one private tutoring okay well you're paying hundreds of dollars an hour for private tutoring it can often make sense to pay 218 dollars or whatever it is to register for the LSAT and then, oh, well, uh, yeah, I wasn't quite ready. So I'm just going to pay another $130 or whatever it is to kick the can down the road a couple months. But that can be worth it for people with money. Yeah. Um, 
so, you know, for, for some folks that they're going to say, yeah, you know, I might get there. I've been working hard and I want to make up 11 points between now and the day of the test in six weeks. Maybe I can do that. So I'll register. Yeah. Again, though, you do have to be strong enough to say, oh, well, with a week to go before the test, I'm clearly not ready. So now I'm going to have to reschedule my test and I'm not going to get or withdraw from the test and I'm not going to get any kind of a refund or whatever. So I'm just burning up a couple hundred thousand, a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. But that can be worth it because you're trying to get a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of free law school tuition at the at the back end of this. Um, obviously, people on a budget can't make that same decision, which is unfair. But whatever, just wait until the deadline. Look at your practice test scores. If you think they're good enough, then register. And if they're if they're nowhere close, then just clearly don't throw your money away. Yep. Go to LSAT.link forward slash dates if you want to see all of the upcoming LSATs and the registration deadlines for those tests. I think we still, is that right, Ben, that we still don't have dates for the fall? I haven't heard of them. Um, I don't think we I do. Guess, yeah. Um, wow. I, I think we have test dates up to, <laughs> you know, they have these fictional cycles. And uh, mm -hmm. I, the only the only test that we have announced right now is, yeah, April 2024, which registration deadline is leap day, February 29th. Mm -hmm. And then we have the June 2024 test. Mm -hmm. Registration yep. deadline for that is April 23rd. Yeah, they have. I think they have specifically said that there will be an August test. Yeah, but I mean, as I understand it, we don't. That's have when a, the games go away, right? So, <laughs> right, the games will go away with the August test, and yeah. typically they offer like four tests in the fall. Right, it'll be like mm -hmm. August, September, October, and then November, November December. or December. Yeah, and then that'll be it for the cycle. They have been offering it eight times a year. But that changes in my career teaching LSAT. It used to be always four times a year. Then at one point it was nine times a year. Now it went back down, I guess, to eight times a year. We don't really know until they announce the next cycle. I wonder why they take time to, to announce these dates, because it, it seems like fairly simple. I mean, it's an online test in the vast majority of cases. You can do it in person, obviously, but. I mean, they've been doing this for so many years, right? It's going to follow a similar pattern. I, I wonder yeah, what the whole I mean, is. the number of students taking the test changes from year to year. They might wait and see how many people they got taking the test at each administration. Um, they might talk to the law schools themselves, look at like the application cycle overall, how many schools got applications, how many, you know, like when did they get the applications? Are they getting enough applicants? I don't know. Who knows what kind of like they the makers of the test essentially are just the law schools, right? It's the law mm -hmm. school admission council is a member organization of and the members are all the law schools. So they're getting together and they're figuring out <laughs> how often and when they want to offer this test. And yeah. they have preserved this like fiction of the cycle. Mm -hmm. it, it's funny because it, it, it really like we always encourage our students to not think about the, the cycle at all. 
you should be planning on multiple retakes, which almost always crosses multiple cycles. It would be really nice to know when the fall tests are so that people can plan their lives like, you know, weddings and vacations and shit like that. <laughs> um, but they instead they they announce all of them at once. And I would imagine that that's probably coming in the next few months sometime. It's got to come soon. That, right? Yeah, we would. We would hope that we'll have uh, the next test cycle out at some point here yeah. soon so people can plan. But I think you can probably just go ahead and count on there will be an August test. There probably will be at least two and probably three more in the after the August test. Still in 2024, because then that would get you to eight in the calendar year. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Enough about that. Uh, we have an email here from Anonymous. Oh, wow. Okay, right on topic. Should I take the April LSAT? Hi, Ben and Nate. I know you say don't take the LSAT until your scores reflect what you want, but given the limited test administrations with the logic game section, do you think I should register for the April LSAT? I've been preparing for the game section for over a year, and I would like to give it a go. My last few full tests were, from oldest to most recent, 162, 161, 159, 163. My very first diagnostic starting point on the Demon platform was a 157 just about exactly a year ago. Huh. I'm a little concerned by the lack mm -hmm. of progress. Mm -hmm. I'm aiming for a solid high to mid, mid to high 170 score. Is this jump feasible in a month? If so, what should my schedule look like? I'm free from work obligations, no pressure, but I hope this response comes out before the February 29 registration date for the April administration. Thanks so much for all your help and advice over the years. I've been listening to both podcast shows and written in several times. Hopefully my LSAT journey ends soon. Best anonymous. Um, okay, in a follow-up email, apparently anonymous said that Logic Games is their best section. Uh, geez. At the end of the day, though, you don't get into law school based on your section scores. You get in based on your overall score. I'm inclined to think that this person is not ready for April. But what do you think? Well, I mean, look, if you've only made, you know, something like a five, six point improvement in a year. Why would you then think that you're going to make a 10, an additional 10 point improvement? in a month yeah it's not not that these improvements have to be linear and in fact i hope that maybe this subscriber upgrades to live comes to a class maybe geez maybe even meets with a tutor for an hour to figure out what is going on right like a year and starting with a diagnostic of 157 yeah, I wouldn't jump straight to tutoring. I mean, if you're not already a live subscriber, I would try to talk people out of tutoring. That's something different about LSAT Demon that you're not going to get anywhere else, is that if you talk to me and if you talk to many of our teachers, we're going to tell you tutoring is not the thing for you if you're not already just coming to our live classes. It, it almost makes me mad when people want tutoring, but they don't want to come to live classes because I don't know. I don't. I didn't come from money and I'm not like, I, I just, <laughs> it just makes me mad. Like it, from an economic point of view, really, you don't want to pay two ninety five a month to come to unlimited 
classes on Zoom with the exact same people that you might then pay hundreds of dollars an hour to work with one on one? What? What? <laughs> why? Why wouldn't you just come to my class and ask your same questions? So yeah. Well, I, let me push back on that a little bit. Okay. I mean, you know that I. I am always pushing people to the demon over tutoring, yeah. even if that's not live. Yeah. Because the economics just don't make sense. People right. meet with me and then I, by the end of the session, it's like, okay, we're never meeting again because you're just going to go do live or you're going to go do even basic. Mm -hmm. So I don't think tutoring makes sense. And I agree with you there, but I can also see people saying, look, I'm not as concerned about the money. And when I meet with someone one-on-one, -on -one, I can just go back and forth with them in a sure. way that you can't in class. And I just want to maximize my time yeah. and then figure out what's wrong with me and what I'm doing. And then, then again, go from there. I mean, and I, I, yes, I agree. And if money is not an issue, absolutely. You know, you can yeah. go one-on-one -on -one with your tutor for a whole hour, but I mean, yeah. what most classes you've got like two or three students who are actually vocal and asking most of the questions. So I would encourage people to come to class and then participate. When mm -hmm. I say, does anyone have any questions? Mm -hmm. I really mean, does anyone have any questions? I want to hear from you. Like, what mm -hmm. are you stuck on? What are you worried about? Why, you know, this anonymous, you have not made enough progress in a year. I, I, I'm, I'm worried that you haven't made enough progress in the last year. And I would investigate why haven't you made more progress? To go from the high 150s to the low yeah. 160s in a year is not the kind of transformative improvement that we see in many of our students. Yeah. Like I, I, there hasn't been a big click for you where all of a sudden the test now starts to make sense. Mm -hmm. um, I'm worried that games is your strongest section. You know, if you're at one in the low 160s with, hopefully approaching perfect games. If games is your best section, then you should be getting close to perfect on that. But, you know, I'm sorry to break it to you, Anonymous, but you suck at logical reasoning and reading comprehension. You're not, <laughs> you do not have the LR and RC skills that are going to give you a 170 something score. Mm -hmm. You've got major improvement that you need to make in those sections. So yes, games are going away. Yes, games is your best section. But if you're really shooting for mid to high 170s, you have to unlock the logical reasoning and you have to unlock the reading comprehension because even perfect games are just not going to get you where you want to go. I appreciate that you've been listening to us. I appreciate that you're emailing to the podcasts and asking us questions. That's great. I would encourage you to come to class and ask me questions or go to Ben's class and ask him questions because there's something that you're missing. And, you know, being free from work obligations and that, that worries me too, right? Cause it's like, oh, so what, now you're going to try to study full time and hope that that gets you over the hump, but that's not really how it works out for most people. Yeah. I mean, there can be huge advantages. You could, you know, because you're not working, you have time to work out you do have a time time to sleep. put in yeah sleep which is way more valuable than people realize yeah. and put in 3 4 hours 
of really good time, not all together. Maybe you do an hour in the morning, an hour in the afternoon, another hour in the evening. But um, so there are some advantages to not working. But what I think happens for a lot of people, right, is they just start falling into the quantity trap. Like I'm going to sit here and I'm going to do hundreds of questions and just go through the motions. And that's not where you make progress. Where you make progress is you do a question and then you force yourself to figure it out. That's what's so powerful about drilling. As you do a question, you don't have to hit submit. There's no timer. So just, just figure it out no matter how hard it is. And don't just give up and hope that the explanation will explain it to you. I mean, yeah, I mean, will, we've got, but <laughs> anonymous gave us this litany of practice test scores, you know, this list of 162, 161, 159, 163. Yeah. Okay. So you're in the low 160s and so what, like, what are you actually missing? What, where mm -hmm. are you missing your points? And we got to dig into those individual mistakes. I don't want you to just do test after test after test and hope that the machine spits out a different number. I want you to do less, fewer questions and just get in there and mm -hmm. dig into them and figure out why you're missing the ones you're missing. Yeah. All right. Stepping back really quick. I mean, the question was, should I register for April? And I guess it comes back to what you already said at the beginning, right, Nathan? If anonymous has money, fine, buy the option. But chances are you're not going to use it. Well, and also potentially, you know, anonymous might need to be a little bit more realistic with their goals. I don't know. I, I hate telling people to lower their goals, but I, I generally tell people not to have like a target score. I, I don't really know what point there is in saying like, oh, I need a high 170 score. It's like, yeah, okay, well, that's. Yeah. But this <laughs> person did start with a 157, right? I mean, that's. I'm, I'm, Okay. Yeah. First diagnostic on the demon platform was a 157. If that was a cold diagnostic though, then why haven't you made dramatic improvement from there over the past year? That's the scary part. Yeah. That's the part I don't get is like what you've been doing something wrong. And I, you know, I just doing more of the same wrong things is not going to lead to improvement. Or maybe we haven't made it <laughs> clear exactly what you should be doing, but Let's try and figure it out. Talk to us. Come yeah. to class. You know, for $295, you can have a month full, a month of unlimited live classes with me, Ben, Chris, all of our other amazing teachers and tutors. You can get better at all sections of the test. You can be answering, you can be asking us questions just all day, every day. And, um, you know, I hope you're using the ask button if you're not already. On individual mistakes that you're making, you need to be watching videos, reading written explanations, using the ask button, finding those clicks, finding those moments of clarity where you you go, oh, <laughs> oh, wow. OK, that geez, what was I thinking there? You know, get to that moment where you realize, oh, shit, I would never pick that answer again because that's obviously wrong. And how did I not? I would obviously pick this every single time because it's the one that answers the question. And if you're not finding those clicks, then you can just keep studying for another year without making any improvement. It's kind of hard here with the games expiring. It's kind of hard to tell Anonymous what to do because if it is your best section and that is an expiring option, I mean, there's you got two more, two more LSATs with games. 
So taking it in April and taking it in June might be your best bet. You know, you might because I'm worried that if games is your best section and if you don't make the improvement on reading comp and logical reasoning that you need to make. Let's think about the downside here, which is games go away <laughs> starting in August. Now you're faced with two sections of logical reasoning and one section of reading comp. And your score could be right back where you started at 157 or even lower if games was your best section even back then. Yeah. Tough spot, Anonymous. I think you should come to class and talk to us. Come to class and talk to us. That said, I think your goal, especially if the 157 is a cold diagnostic, is is a noteworthy one i would something troubling there yeah yeah and you know i i don't want to say don't do one one hour tutoring session it's possible that your tutor is going to find something right away and direct your attention so that you start spending your time and energy in more productive ways mm-hmm. i think you can have those same aha moments in class you've just got to be willing to be the squeaky wheel and ask a bunch of questions in class but if you're not willing to do that then you're not going to be a very good law student anyway you know, you've just got to start advocating for yourself. So show up and talk to me. Cool. Uh, thanks for writing. And the next one is from Logan. The subject is changes in LSAT logical reasoning in August, not just the removal of, of logic games. Okay. I did not know that logical reasoning was changing at all. That has not been announced or anything, right? And not that I've heard. Yep. So Logan says there's a common trend of people claiming recent experimental LR has been more formal in its logic questions almost similar to logic games in that diagramming would be helpful more must be trues what do you make of this well okay first of all Nathan you've mentioned this right like this is one of your predictions is that maybe the logical reasoning might go more (laughs) game-ish And have a little more like formality to some of the questions. I think the only reason why I had that speculation was that one weird experimental section. You remember a few test administrations back Mm -hmm. where they actually announced they've never done this ever before, or at least not in the 15 plus years that I've been teaching LSAT. They told the test takers that this was the experimental section, which they never do. And Mm -hmm. you should not expect that they're going to do that on your test. Yeah. Because they can't tell you that it's experimental and then get valid (laughs) experimental results out of it. (laughs) But they did on one test. They said, hey, we're we're trying out some new shit. Mm -hmm. And the new shit was basically kind of like a hybrid of LR and games. So it was like shorter questions, but it was maybe more similar stuff where it was like, hey, P comes before Q and Q comes before R and S comes before R, you know, uh, who can't go third? Yeah. And the answer is R. But yeah, maybe in a situation like that, penciling something out might be a little bit helpful. What I don't want people to think is that they need to start diagramming a bunch of conditional reasoning. Yeah. Because when you start diagramming conditional reasoning, 95% of students are just going to make it harder for themselves, not easier. And I, (laughs) until you hear otherwise from us, I think you should plan on never diagramming on logical reasoning. Well, we don't diagram uh, conditional statements hardly ever. 
even on games, in we games. don't diagram traditional statements. Yeah. We just make worlds. I mean, to I get have noted, yeah, I've noted sometimes like, oh, if this is here, then this is going to come over to this slot. And, but I'm not drawing the contrapositive. And I may just end up not even drawing that and saying, okay, well, what happens if I create two worlds? Yeah. So what we might see is a situation where people start doing worlds. <laughs> Yeah, worlds for In LR. logical, logical Sure, reason. sure. Yeah. Where it's, you know, I, I can imagine a question, just kind of spitballing here, but a question where it's like, you know, um, I promise to buy your house if I get approved for the loan, but if I buy your house, then I'm going to have to move. I don't know. And then, you know, <laughs> and then it would be something like, okay, so in the world where you get approved for the loan, then you're going to have to move. Mm-hmm. And in the world where you don't get approved for the loan, I don't know shit. But it's still just like I'm doing two worlds in my head. I'm thinking like, well, OK, so if you get approved for the loan, then that's going to tip off the dominoes. You know, that shit's going to yeah. happen there. And yep. then if you don't get approved for the loan, then the dominoes are still there. Yep. So nothing happens. So it's as if there is no rule. And I don't know that a diagram actually helps. Uh, one thing that I say a lot in classes is that if you can't do that in your head, then I just don't think that you probably can do it on paper anyway, at least not in the context of LR. So we'll see, and we'll certainly report back. Mm-hmm. What about this idea that there's going to be more must be truths? I've never heard anything about that. Well, I think maybe that's just coming from the speculation that if you have more formulaic questions, they do tend to seem to be must be truths. I mean, they can also turn out to be sufficient assumption questions, but they're, they tend to be these questions that are they're they're not as soft as like a strengthened question or yeah. something there's a weird thing out there where have you ever had students say oh i i hate must be true i think must be true is really hard i'm worried about must be true hmm. no i've encountered this in class from time to time normally yeah. what i say is that you know you just kind of got to get over that because at least half of the test is must be true right i mean probably way more than half the test more. is must yeah. be true because yep all of reading comp or like 95% of reading comp is just must be true. It's like, hey, what did it say in the passage? <laughs> what did they say about this? What did they say about that? What was the main point? What did they say? And you know, you got to be in the must be true mindset of I'm picking answers that are justified by what is said in the passage. This must be true according to the passage. Yep. So we've got our must be true hat on in 100% of reading comp or 95% of reading comp. LR probably 50% is must be true because there's explicitly must be true questions. There's soft must be true questions, or we call them supported questions, but it's just essentially ideally find one that must be true. And if you can't find one that strictly must be true, then you find the next best thing. So you're still in a must be true mindset, right? When you do supported questions, then you've got flaw questions, which start out as must be true. Because did they do this? You've got necessary assumption questions, which are basically just must be true questions. That's the easiest way to learn how to do necessary assumption questions. Ben, you got a nice review uh, yesterday from your free class that you did yesterday, where someone said that you made necessary assumption questions really easy by teaching it as a must be true. Mm. Cool. More and more, I find myself saying that in class. I'm just like, oh, it's a necessary assumption question. So... It's a must be true question. (laughs) So 
let's just find the one that has to be true. Yeah. Um, reasoning questions, all of the ones that ask you about the role played in the argument or, you know, describe the reasoning of this argument. That's basically just must be true. What did they do for sure? Mm -hmm. There's probably other ones in, um, in logical reasoning, but so like, it's probably 50%. Oh, conclusion questions. Those are must be true. Probably 50% of LR is must be true. So it's like 95% of reading comp 50% of LR. And then even on games, they ask a lot of must be true, must be false questions. Yeah. So I don't know why people struggle so much with it. Maybe it's something to do with <laughs> the nature of college education these days, especially with like social sciences, you know, <laughs> questions where you are uh, classes where you read a bunch of really long books and then you write like long bullshit essays about them. And it's just like, okay, you're not, <laughs> you're not closely reading and answering like factual questions. It's just kind of spitballing like ideas, you know, mm -hmm. and that's not what the LSAT is largely. The LSAT is over way over 50% must be true. And you just got to decide that you're going to read it, actually understand what it says, understand the question. And when in doubt, they're just asking you, Hey, what did it just say? Like, find a factual answer here based on what they said. Yeah. Well, I have, I have two ideas. One, there are, so there was a time when I was putting together, uh, homeworks, uh, like study guides and stuff like that. And so I was always looking at the number of questions in each section and how many questions there were. And there are a lot of flaw questions and there are a lot of must be true questions. Those are the two most common yeah. in logical reasoning. And what that allows is that allows there to be also a greater number of must be true questions that are level five, mm. also level one, level two, level three. But of right. course, people don't remember those, right? What they remember the is encountering the hard mm -hmm. ones and they go, oh, that's a must be true. Oh, I must not be good. It must be true. Well, no, because mm -hmm. you got all these other must be true questions right. Conclusion questions, on the other hand, are pretty rare. Maybe one a section, sometimes two. And they tend to be easier. There are level five conclusion questions. There's just not that many. So of course, when if people encountered those, they would be like, oh, I suck at conclusion questions. No, you don't. You just suck at that hard one that they happen to give you. So I think that's what's going on there. Mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to say was you just made this argument, and I think you're totally right, that, hey, look, 95% of reading comp is a must-be-true type of question, and you said 50% of LR. I think it's more like 60 or 70%. Okay fall into this category of a must be true type of question. Yeah. But I would go further and I would say that remaining 30 or 40% of LR is still must be true because when you're evaluating the argument for a strengthened question or a weakened question, you have to figure out what must be true on the basis of the premises to decide whether the conclusion is valid. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, it's not like you're not picking an answer there based on what must be true according to the facts. But I agree with you that if it's saying, hey, which one of these would strengthen that argument? Well, then you have to understand what the argument actually said. What was the evidence? What was the conclusion? What was the argument that was actually being made? And then <laughs> there's one answer that it must be true is the one that answers the question. 
Totally. What I'm saying though is like, and I think you kind of glossed over it there when you were describing that process. When you figure out whether an argument is good or bad, one of the steps in there is first, okay, what did the premises say and what must be true on the basis of those premises? Sure. Does the conclusion already have to be true based on these facts? Yes. Or that's a must be true question right there because you're saying no, wrong answer. It doesn't yeah. have to be true. It's what you would not pick if that yep. was the narrow must be true question going on. So yep. you're being tested on that skill as part of that sure. question. Yeah, 100% of the time on, on LR, if they're ever making an argument and, and when they're not making an argument, if they just give you a bunch of facts, then they're almost always going to just ask you a must be true question anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But if they're what making an argument, <laughs> then you need to think about like, well, okay, here's your evidence. Here's your conclusion. Mm-hmm. Does the conclusion have to be true based on these facts? Yeah. Probably not. Okay. Well, where's the disconnect? What's yep. the gap? Mm-hmm. And if you can spot that gap, you know, then you're, it's like you're saying, hey, it must be true that there's a gap in your argument. <laughs> here's your evidence. Here's your conclusion. It must be true that your conclusion does not follow from your facts. Yeah. It must be true that if this other thing were true, mm-hmm. then your argument would be worse or better or whatever. And yeah, so it's this just like sort of training yourself to be in this mindset of close reading and really mm-hmm. understanding what it actually says on the page. Yeah. Next one. Yeah. What does it take to score in the 170s? Nathan, you apparently have a video from a couple of years ago that answers this question by discussing the three main things that the LSAT tests. One, your mastery of the English language. Yep. Two, your reasoning skills. Yep. And three, your willingness to work hard. Yep. But with the number of 170 plus scores on the rise in recent years, maybe we should ask, what does it take to score a 175 on the LSAT? <laughs> well, uh, it takes that to a just like a higher degree. I mean, you're just not scoring in the high 170s if you're not a gladiator of the English language, right? Mm-hmm. You you have and I'm not saying you have to know every single word, but you have to be a good enough reader that you're going to be able to get around unfamiliar vocabulary. I mean, Ben, you encounter unfamiliar vocabulary all the time when you look at the LSAT. I encounter unfamiliar vocabulary all the time when I look at the LSAT. But that's okay because they're going to define the unfamiliar vocabulary half the time and they're going to, in other cases, they're going to give you enough context that you're going to be able to figure out what the unfamiliar word means or you're going to understand enough around it to realize that you don't even need to understand what the unfamiliar word means because it's not actually material to the argument that's being made. Yeah, well, if you understand, if you're a gladiator of the English language and know, not just think or suspect, but know what those other words mean, then you can have confidence in that context, right? It's it's problematic yeah. when you don't know some words, but you also don't know other words around those words right. that you really should. And it's not even <laughs> not... It's not even not knowing words, but it's not reading all of them, not seeing how the words are working together, not mm-hmm. understanding the meaning of of the of phrases and the meaning of sentences and the meaning of arguments. 
People yeah. just get lost in it. You know, like you ask students, okay, why did you pick B? And they start talking about like one word in B. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I didn't pick D because of this word, but I picked yeah. B because of that word. And that and word I'm was like, in the passage. It's like, huh? One word does not make an answer right. <laughs> no, one word frequently does make answers wrong. But yeah. then even then, it's not the word that makes it wrong. It's the way they use the word in the context of the other words that were in that answer choice and I'm in so the context glad. of the question that was being asked. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because it's funny when someone's like, well, I got rid of B, they, maybe they got rid of it, right? Correctly. I got rid of B because of all. And I look at the correct answer. I'm like, well, it also says all. So <laughs> right. Oh, that's that not the problem. The right? I know. <laughs> yeah. I got rid of that because it, it says, yeah, because it says uh, always. And I'm like, yeah. okay, but the one that is correct says every. Inver or invariably. Or invariably, or, or whatever <laughs> else. Yeah, that, that does happen all the time, right? So, okay, I think we can agree that you're not scoring in the high 170s, right? 175 mm. plus, if that's the purpose mm. of this little mini lesson, you're mm. not scoring in the high 170s if you are not a master of the English language. You just need to get really, really good at English. How do you do that? Read, write. Read and, and force yourself unpack sentences that you don't understand. You can't get away with, that was confusing. I'm just going to keep reading and hope that it manifests itself to me in some miraculous way. No, yeah, you're responsible. Yeah. Reasoning skills. I mean, I think that it, it is still just common sense. I think that the, the logic that's required is not heavy lifting. It's more like patience. It's the willingness to just grapple with it and think about what's actually being said and not answer based on emotion or answer based on your gut or whatever. But yeah. it's, it's like this focus of I'm not moving on too quickly. I'm going to make sure that I am getting this one correct. Like to, to score 175 or higher, you can't make mistakes. It's totally possible that you're not going to make it to the end of the section. You don't need to answer the last one in every section, but you need to get them right on the way there. So 175 and higher, perfect first 10, probably perfect first 15, maybe even perfect first 20 on every single section, you know, maybe you miss one in the first 20. But if you're missing more than one in the first 20, mm -hmm. you are not scoring 175. So I think to score 175 or higher, you have to focus on perfection on every individual question. You know, you got to get all the easy ones right. You got to get all the medium difficulty ones right. And that'll get you into the 160s. To get 170 or 175, you have to start also then getting the hardest ones right. But it's always one at a time rather than this idea that like I have to race to the end of the section. Yeah. So to recap, you're mastering the English language by learning how to read sentences, learning how to read words and see how they relate to each other. You're using these reasoning skills, which I you said common sense. I think that can be misleading because... 
I think there are a lot of things on the LSAT that make sense, but commonly people get them mixed up. I don't know. If I guess it's what common. I mean by that is that you don't need fancy formal logic, right? It's just you, you not, don't. No, I agree. You, yeah. Like you don't need to diagram. You don't need to ever even know what the contrapositive is. Yeah. <laughs> not necessary. No. Not necessary. You know, I agree. Mm -hmm. it, because that is common sense. I mean, the way I teach the contrapositive is by talking about like, well, where do you live? <laughs> what town do you live in? Okay. What state is that in? Mm -hmm. All right. So if you're in your town, then you have to be in your state, right? Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. So does that mean that if you have, if you're in your state, you have to be in that same town and everybody goes, no, good. <laughs> does it mean that if you're not in your state, it's not possible to be in that town? Everybody goes, yeah, duh. Okay. Well then you understand the contrapositive and you didn't need to diagram anything in order to do that. It's more just like patience and kind of putting things together. But it's like, I don't know, it's not what people think it is. Yeah, well, so one thing about that example, which you give a lot, is that it's an example that people have had an opportunity to experience. Yep. Right? And I think what happens on the test is that same logic is tested in context that they haven't thought through. So that's where some quick judgments can be wrong, but it's, it's, it does make sense if you slow down and think about it. And then as you do that, and you might make some mistakes sometimes, you see your mistake, and then you start to catch it in the future. And you go, wait a sec, I'm not familiar with this area, but when I think about it, I can figure out what makes sense. And, and you're right, it, it doesn't require any sort of formal logic training or anything like that. Yeah, you do have to encounter it in unfamiliar contexts. Want me to give you one from the world of golf? Sure, go for it. You're only allowed to use a wooden tee or a plastic tee or any other tee. You're only allowed to use a tee when you're on the tee box. Okay. 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 That's, that's a statement in English. Okay. You're only allowed to use a tee on the tee box. Okay. Got it. Okay. So if I'm legally using a tee, then what do you know for sure? You're on the tee box. Okay. If I'm on the tee box, do I have to use a tee? Definitely not. Why? That's the only place I can use it. It doesn't mean I have to. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so it is still the same. I mean, the lot, all that logic is just the same. Yep. It's just all you're really doing is thinking about when the rule applies and when the rule doesn't apply. And I still think it's common sense. I understand that people get upset sometimes when I say it's common sense. It's just, it's like an uncommon version maybe of common sense where it's like, no, 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 but I want you to slow down and I want you to think about what it actually says. Yep. Like think about the limits of what it says. I said, you're only allowed to use the T on the T box. I did not say that you have to use a T on the T box. Those are two entirely different things. If the rule was different, if the rule was you are required to use a T on the T box, then, you know, if I'm on the T box, what do you know for sure? I'm using a T. You have but to use a T. You don't know what happens when you're outside the T box now. <laughs> right. Well, but if I said I'm not using a T, yeah. then, then what you know would you know? As long as I'm complying with the rules, then I'm not on the T box. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. Exactly. That if you're not using a tee, then you can't be on the tee box. If that were the rule, that's not the rule of golf. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, willingness to work hard, which we said in the original video about how to score in the one seventies. I do still think that the LSAT tests your willingness to work hard though. The main way that it does that is that we have a hundred practice tests to work with. Yeah. And, and with all of these practice tests, if you just keep working on those practice tests, and I'm not saying do test after test after test, I'm saying do one test or do one part of one test or do one question from one of those tests and then thoroughly, carefully review it. If you do that, and if you do that repeatedly, and if you do that over a long period of time, and if you take the official test eventually, and if you take a backup official test and maybe a backup to your backup, <laughs> And maybe a fourth backup, maybe a fifth backup, you know, like you've got to be dedicated and willing to work hard. I do think that that is one of those things that it's just going to be re rewarded over time. I mean, 175 plus Ben is the 99, at least the 99th percentile, more like the 99.5 percentile or 99.9 .9 percentile when you start getting to 178, 179, 180. If those are the kind of scores you want, then you're thinking about outscoring one. You're, you're going to outscore 999 of a thousand people. Yeah. So you're in a massive like what quad area and you're the one who's better than everyone else there. Uh, of of people smarter and harder working than the people you went to college with. Yeah. So this is a selective quad. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like... It's a chess tournament. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, so like you're talking about elite scores. So I think you want to have an elite mastery of the English language. I think that you want to have an elite, at least willingness to focus on reasoning. And I think you might want to also have an elite work ethic because you're just competing against people who are very smart, very hardworking, have really strong English. And if you don't have those things, then I just don't see how you're making it to that, that high level. Uh, I totally agree. I want to add one word to this last tip, your willingness to work hard effectively. Yeah. Right. Cause there Cause are people who just... are going to do like, uh, yeah. Oh, hundred tests. Okay. I'll do them. I'll do them twice. And yeah, that's not where the real work takes place. It's almost like humility is one of those things mm -hmm. because I can think of students that I've had in the past who have done test after test after test after test and not really improved much. And it's like they know something's missing. They know they need to do more. But then they don't humble themselves enough to ask the right questions or to really like they get mad about the question instead of learning from the question. Do you know what I sure. do you know the yeah, type of student they that wanna, I'm thinking of? They want to argue with the answer key. They want to explain why this is an exception. And they don't Outside really listen here. to yeah. the response where you know you've got an expert there telling them, nope, that answer was wrong in the first three words because it can't possibly be correct after saying what it already said and here's why. Yeah, but, and they start arguing back about some other part of that answer that was already wrong. 
Yeah. And furthermore, they don't accept the right answer, which, you know, might not be perfect, but it is by far the best one because the other ones can be conclusively eliminated. And they just like what one thing I tell students a lot is you're allowed to have like one question per test. Where. You can just. Fuck off. I don't care that question. Don't (laughs) I don't care. Like, don't learn anything from that question. Fine. That's okay. Fine. That one's not for you. Fine. But you're not allowed to have two of those per test. (laughs) And there there are students who get stuck in the high 160s, low 170s, who think that they're smarter than the test. They think they know better than the test. And I'll tell you, I have been humbled by this test over and over and over. How many times, Ben, have I sent you emails like, oh, I think this question's broken. And then you email (laughs) me back like, well, no. (laughs) Let me, here's how you, I, you know, here's how you, here's what you're missing. And I look at that and I go, oh, fuck. All right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> it, it, you know, and yeah. so there's, there's just, there are students who are going to resist too much of the test. Mm-hmm. And maybe you make it to 171 that way. But I don't think you make it to 178 that way. Yeah. You know, you, you do need this realization that the test actually makes sense. Mm-hmm. Anything else? No. All right, let's leave it there. What's this FAFSA update? Yeah, so apparently uh, the Department of Education is delayed in putting out the free application for federal student aid. That's the FAFSA. That's really how I know it. I didn't know what it actually stood for. But anyways, um, it's delayed. Can I just say a pet peeve? Yeah. People call it the FAFSA. FAFSA? It drives oh. me fucking nuts, but people say FAFSA and I'm like, that is not the order of those letters. It says FAFSA, yeah. F-A-F-S-A, <laughs> not F-A-S-F-A, it's FAFSA. Anyway, well, I'm ahead. glad I got that right because uh, there's a lot that I don't. But um, yeah, so anyways, it's delayed. It's not going to come out till the beginning or the middle of March. And that's, I guess, five months behind the typical schedule. So some people who are waiting for their financial aid package to come in from the schools We'll have to wait till March. This financial aid, by the way, means loans. Yeah. So this is really like not what you want to be waiting for, unless, of course, you're getting a small loan. But and I should point out that in undergrad. Aid can include grants. You know, there's like Pell Grants and stuff that you could be getting. Yeah, it all falls under the umbrella of aid. Right. So, uh, but it's, you, it's t- so deceptive. It really needs to be separated. I have a thousand percent. I can't agree more. I can't believe they call it financial aid and they it, like, it could mean grants, which is free money, or it could mean loans, which is not only not free money, it's money that costs more than the nominal dollar amount that you're getting because you have to pay interest on the loans. So it's like, Oh, financial aid. Hey, who doesn't want financial aid? You could go around and ask people on the street. Hey, do you want financial aid? Yeah, I want financial aid. Okay, great. Here's a thousand bucks and you have to pay me 19% interest on it. <laughs> that's not financial aid. That's usury. That's yeah. Like a yeah fucking, that's what that that's, is. Right. So yeah. that's a loan shark. Yeah. And in law school terms, when they start talking about financial aid, they are talking about loan sharking. Yeah. I mean, it it's loans that some of them have somewhat reasonable rates of return or sorry, interest rates. But many of them don't. Yeah. 
I, I want to say one thing before we move on from this distinction between aid and loans or and grants. Do you remember that study I shared with you from the Freakonomics podcast about the school that was concerned about, I guess, um, for some reason, I think they were focusing on underrepresented minorities, but the school said, hey, instead of offering financial aid, in other words, loans, let's change this to grants. And there was only a 3% uptick in those who took advantage of the grants. And they were, the, the conclusion, and I don't remember all the details, but basically people didn't recognize the significant difference in getting a grant versus getting a loan. So instead of like, they're, you know, mm. it should have been a heyday. It should have been like, wait, what? We're gonna get a grant? So everybody opts into that. It was only a 3% uptick from the previous year. We're addicted to debt in this country. You know, like debt is so normalized that, I mean, college campus, you just, you, you show up and it's like, hey, you get a free hacky sack if you sign up for this visa with a 32% oh interest rate. Or a slice of pizza. <laughs> yeah, you know, and well, the schools themselves uh, via the Department of Education are giving out loans and everybody's got a car loan. We've got this ridiculous system where we give people a deduction off of their income tax if they have a mortgage. <laughs> which a gigantic loan. Yeah. Really makes no <laughs> sense at all. Like, why are we incentivizing people to borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars for a house? I mean, we, you know, you can argue about whether home ownership is or is not a public good. Um, I think that the private ownership of land is probably a public bad. Uh, but for some reason, we incentivize this. Mm -hmm. And we, <laughs> it makes, I mean, I took this tax policy class at Hastings. I talk about it a lot because it was probably the best class I took in law school. Yeah. But in this tax policy class, it was like, it's totally indefensible. Like, no one can make a rational argument that defends the home interest deduction. It's just mm. a thing that makes rich people get richer. Mm. And, but no one will ever get rid of it either because it's like so politically entrenched. Yeah. Um, anyway, we have this addiction to debt that uh, I, many religions, Ben, would actually say that that's sinful. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right? Sinful for the lender and sinful for the borrower. It's like a double yeah. sin that yeah. we're so indebted. But mm -hmm. then, you know, everybody does it like interest rates go down and everybody goes out and refinances their house so that they could buy a new fucking truck and boat. <laughs> or a second house. <laughs> right. Jeez. Or whatever other ridiculous shit that they're just like leveraged to the max. And our educational system is no different. That yeah. They just encourage people to borrow outrageous sums of money and that's the purpose of this podcast that's the purpose of what we do is to try to get you not to do that shit well what sucks so much is that education happens when kids are young right so it's the first opportunity to really take out a big loan and you end up doing so and the fact that you do so just i mean nathan if you if you have right if you have a budget <laughs> and you're you're trying to stay within that budget as soon as you take out a loan for $1,000, what's the difference between taking out a loan for 1000 and taking one out for 5000 Yeah. And, 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 and at that point, it just becomes a slippery slope, right? And all of a sudden, it's like, yeah. well, why hold back? Why sacrifice for the future? Yeah. 
Well, we also like the human brain can't comprehend the orders of magnitude. Yes. Right. Yeah. Like you can't actually picture the difference between 350 or 3,500 or 35,000 or 350,000. Your brain yeah. doesn't, doesn't make a big enough adjustment between those things. Yeah. Totally. And so it's just real easy for, for Jesus Christ, adolescence, you know, 18 years old, I think we're starting to realize that 18 years old is not like actually a fully functioning human brain. Yeah. But it's old enough to sign your life away for hundreds of thousands of dollars of education loans. Yeah. That, by the way, you can't discharge in bankruptcy. <laughs> okay. Anyway, should we go back to this announcement? Yeah. The, so the what's five stuck out to you? Already... <laughs> It's it's a five month delay, yeah, from the Department of Education to get out this free application for federal student aid. Why is that happening? Who fucking knows? Our government doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, that's a separate issue. Yeah, the thing we really wanted to talk about was because uh, because here when you're applying to law school, they're going to make you a scholarship offer either with your offer of admission or shortly following your offer of admission. And it really doesn't have anything to do with the FAFSA. They're giving you a tuition no. grant because they want to buy your LSAT and they want to buy your GPA. They know you're a strong applicant. They know that you're going to go to some other competitor school of theirs if they don't make you a really generous offer. And that has nothing to do with financial aid. That's nothing. Grants. Yeah. <laughs> That's yep. scholarships. The FAFSA in law school terms is going to be purely related to loans. I mean, except maybe at uh, need-based schools, Harvard, Stanford, Yale, mm -hmm. maybe a couple other ones at the very top that are starting to give only need-based grants. And there, the FAFSA might actually really matter a lot. I, I do have a question on this. Do some schools require the FAFSA before giving you a scholarship? Not that they need the FAFSA to give you a scholarship, but they're requiring it so they can actually see how much of a scholarship they have to give you. Hmm. Because, you know, if your FAFSA indicates that you're extraordinarily wealthy, maybe the need for such aid is smaller so they can get away with offering you less. I, I really wanted to skip down to the financial aid eligibility chart because I think yeah. the thing that we're getting around to here is there's this big assumption that they're making that mm -hmm. is really, really telling. And maybe I should skip to that right now, sure. which is. They're assuming, we'll post this on the show notes, by the way, this is a Law Hub article about the FAFSA delay update. But when you go down to the financial aid eligibility chart, <clears throat> they're giving these sample numbers for sample law school where the cost of attendance is $85,000 a year. That's a sample. That's just what, that's the number they come up with for the sample. It's wild. Well, it's tuition plus other costs. So we've got tuition, which is going to be a big, big chunk of that, like 45,000, 50,000, 60,000, 70,000 at some schools. So huge chunk of that is just tuition. Then they might tack on a few thousand dollars in fees. Then they're going to tack on a few thousand dollars in books. Then they're going to tack on, you know, you might have to buy the school medical insurance if you don't already have medical insurance, plus rent, food utilities, cell phone, transportation, and all the shit that you have to do to live, 85,000 might actually be low 
<laughs> when I first saw that like, number, I was like, wow, that's high. No, when you think, well, it's high for tuition, right? Because maybe the highest numbers we see are around 70 grand. But if you're talking 70 grand, what, 15 grand for everything else? <laughs> for health low. insurance, rent, <laughs> transportation, yeah. oh, food, cell phone, internet. I mean, <laughs> things that are just necessary in modern life. And yeah, 85,000 could actually be low. So they're saying sample law school is going to cost you $85,000 a year. The next line is the thing I really wanted to get to, which it says subtract from that scholarship and grants. And the number that they're giving you for sample law school, for sample law school applicant, $35,000, Ben, in scholarships and grants. They're just blatantly acknowledging that that is a reasonable number <laughs> to expect. Yeah. yeah. They're telling you that you should not expect to pay full price for law school. They're telling you, sample applicant, you should expect $35,000 off of your tuition. Yeah, this is an interesting slip up because it's, if you talk to the schools, I think they would put something in here like $5,000. It would make $5,000 yeah. seem like, Hey, Those are the scholarships, right? Yeah. Well, and, and that's where if we look at, you know, it, this is a good opportunity to probably just take a look. I know I've already done this before, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the LSAT Demon Scholarship Estimator. Mm -hmm. I'm going to look at a school that gives full rides. I don't know. I'm going to look at George Washington. How about that? Just yeah. to take a peek. <laughs> George Washington. Are you looking at it? And no, I'm pulling it up, but yeah, I'm going to adjust it for like more of a typical student, like a, a 3.5 and a 167. But <laughs> putting that aside, and this is why, Ben, I think we need to make these changes to the tuition roll call, because I just want the message to be clearer that it's not about the individual student. The thing that I really want to show people is right here. Look how much fucking orange there is on this page. Yeah. It, the, this is now this are these are people who are getting who are paying more than half tuition but but they might be getting grants up to like 49% of the tuition it's very rare is what i'm saying that people pay full tuition at george washington 19% of the class pays full tuition a big chunk of the class gets something less than half of their tuition paid for then we've got another 11% of the class that are paying less than half tuition. And I guess George Washington doesn't give a lot of full scholarships. 2% are paying no tuition. This is actually one of the um, less bad offenders in the scholarship game, but they are giving a ton of scammerships. I mean, they're giving, yeah. they're giving a lot of small scholarships. And those scholarships are meant to make you feel good but you need to realize that there are a lot of people at the school who are paying a lot less than you are. And if we go look at a different school, then the story gets way, way worse. Um, you know, what's interesting about GW is they don't have fees. That's a point in their favor. Fees yeah. are fake. <laughs> yeah. Cause you, right. Fees are just another way of charging tuition. Uh, oh no, we've, we haven't raised our tuition. <laughs> just tacked on $4,000 in fees. Um, so that's good that they're not doing that. Okay. So look at wash you, Ben wash you, it wash you has 4% of the class paying full tuition. 
Okay. 14% of the class pays more than half tuition. Wow. So that must mean, so there's 18% of the class paying more than half or full. That means there's 82% of the class who are paying something less than half at WashU. <laughs> yep. 63% are getting a scholarship where they pay less than half tuition. Yeah. 63% paying less than half tuition. And even those people aren't getting the best deal because there are 9% of the class who are paying no tuition at all. And even those people aren't getting the best deal because there are 10% of the people at the class getting a possible stipend. Yeah. 10% of the class have grants and scholarships that exceed the tuition at the school. <laughs> so those are the people that are getting the actual good deal. Yeah. 9% of the class paying no tuition. That's a pretty good deal. Could have been better though. <laughs> then you've got this whole big middle of the class paying something less than half of their tuition. It's just like obviously fictional. Yeah. The price is fake. If more than half of the students are not paying it. Yeah. And that's maybe pretty we much should have everywhere. A, maybe we should have a, a thing at the top of this. That's like, is the tuition real or is the tuition fake? And it's oh, like, it could if, be a meter. It could just be a meter. Based how on, fake, how yeah. fake is yeah tuition fakeness meter. That would be good. We could come up, we could maybe think about developing that where like at wash you the tuition fakeness meter I say it's probably, we're going to have to say tuition fakeness meter 82% at WashU. Yeah, it's pretty high. Right. Because if 82% of the class is paying less than half of the tuition, yep. then tuition fakeness meter 82%. We could yeah. say, you know, if you're paying more than half, that's closer to real. If you're actually paying full tuition, then the tuition is real. Yeah. <laughs> It's but, still not real if you're paying more than half, but not. Yeah. Full. I mean, maybe it's a 96% fake tuition. <laughs> I mean, Although really, that, because if 4% are paying full tuition, then it's a 96% fake. I th it's almost like we, we can think through this, but we almost need to give like more weight. Right. Because you could like George Washington had a lot of orange. And that's better, though, than a lot of yellow. Well, yeah, God I mean, forbid, and again, blue, <laughs> like we want you as an individual applicant, we want you in the blue or the green. Like we yes. want you to be paying zero tuition if possible. We want you to be getting a stipend if possible, but only because these schools offer those deals. Yeah, we we really kind of wish the schools didn't offer those deals because it would be a lot fairer if you just charge a reasonable tuition and charge everybody the same. That's not what they do. They charge yeah. the people with better LSAT, better GPA. Less. And by the way, the people with better LSAT, better GPA, Ben, they tend to be wealthier. They tend to be whiter. They tend to have educated parents. It's just obviously unfair. And so yeah. we want individual applicants because we want what's best for you, the individual applicant. So we want you to take advantage of this broken system. At the same time, we're never going to stop just trying to blow up this broken system because it's clearly unjust. It's just yeah. not fair. Yeah. Poorer, browner people, first generation people, it's not fair for you because they're going to charge you more <laughs> and you're going to get less out of it because you're going to have to go to law school and compete with these people who have better LSAT, better GPA than you do. Yeah. Okay.
Anyway, back to this update. Yeah. Uh, they are assuming a $35,000 scholarship. <laughs> okay. And, the, <laughs> and then the rest of it is what would be properly termed, you know, financial aid. And they should just call financial aid loans. In the law school context, it's loans. Yep. Should we talk about what this means, this delay? I mean, maybe it does mean something for law schools. Maybe it does mean something for law school applicants. Why don't you read some of these bullets and let's see if we can sure. learn anything. What's it what it mean for say. law schools? It says, schools require the FAFSA to determine your eligibility for federal student financial aid. Loans. This, loans. <laughs> Edit. Loans. This includes federal direct loans and federal grad plus loans. Like cut out half of that. It's just... Schools require the FAFSA to determine your eligibility for loans. <laughs> okay. Next. This nationwide challenge, okay, is affecting all undergraduate and graduate programs, so the financial aid offices will be balancing their efforts across student populations, including law. <laughs> so don't hassle the law schools because it's happening everywhere. It's a federal issue. But again, who cares? Because it's just this is your this is your eligibility for loans. And you shouldn't hopefully be taking out, you shouldn't be planning on loans. You should be planning on getting tuition scholarships. Yeah. Okay. Uh, school computer systems require updates and testing before they are ready to issue financial aid offers. Once the first batches of FAFSA data are received, it will likely be several weeks before the first financial aid offers are provided to students. More Again, delays loans, for though. loans. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. What's this mean for law school applicants? Next section of their update. Official financial aid notifications will be delayed. Some schools may provide estimates, but this will not be the norm. Again, for loans, you should bookmark the financial aid pages for your target schools and check the pages periodically for school-specific updates. Dear God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anxiously right. awaiting there. your loans. Yeah. Wait for your loans. Wait for your loans. How about this one? How you can prepare yourself. This year, it's more important than ever to be ready for your first month or two of expenses. Delays in loan processing may create delays in accessing living expenses, uh, accessing living expenses from student loans in your first term. Yeah, absolutely problematic. I mean, this is exactly why, oh, you got to get a good scholarship. I don't want people depending on loans to live. Well, and it, it just, it just makes it more and more obvious that you should not be paying huge tuition. You know, I, I just want schools to normalize. I want them to make it more realistic. I want them to stop charging everybody a different price. And until they do that, you know, at some schools, you know, maybe they do at some schools, maybe they charge a more reasonable tuition. Like we were, we were attacking, or I was kind of attacking Arizona recently because Arizona it has just an unbelievable, uh, scholarship problem. Yeah. Uh, let me, let me go look at that real quick. Um, <laughs> at Arizona, somehow 51% of the class is possibly getting a stipend. Yeah. Another 11 the fake meter paying, there should be like around 100. like 120% fake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it's right. Because we got 62% of the class that is paying no tuition at all. Mm -hmm. And and of those, most of them are actually getting paid. Then you've got 24% of the class that's paying less than half tuition. You've also got 12% paying more than half and only 2% paying full. But the thing I really wanted to point out is that Arizona actually has a tuition that's on the low end. Mm. 
So something weird's going on with Arizona. And we have heard about Arizona like going bankrupt, essentially. I think they like <laughs> <laughs> they can't manage their finances. Yeah. I think they failed at math at some point because they're like not charging enough people enough tuition to even survive. I don't know where I was going with all this. My my point is. I just wish that they weren't so blatantly charging everybody a different price. I wish that the tuition was more like, you know, on this table, looking at this sample table in the financial aid eligibility chart. Mm -hmm. I just wish that top line, the cost of attendance didn't say $85,000 because 50% of that is tuition or sorry, $50,000 of that is tuition or $60,000 of that is tuition. Yeah. And most people don't pay full tuition. They're acknowledging that most people are getting a $35,000 grant, <laughs> which then means that the people who aren't getting that grant are getting so fucked. It's just not fair. So anyway, that's our problem. Hey, you, you know, um, we've talked about this before, but this reminded me of it. And that is that one thing that we have uh, let ourselves fall victim to or fall into the trap of, and that is talking about law school tuition. When you talk about undergrad, everybody talks about cost of attendance. They don't talk about okay. tuition. If you talked about tuition, you'd be talking about a lot smaller numbers. And that's what you would think about. Like right? when people hear $50,000 a year or $60,000 a year, they say, okay, well, times three, that's 150,000. Yeah. Yeah, but no, because you got to tack on another pay, 90 because yeah. $30,000 a year worth of living expenses. And it's just not a, it's not fluent, right? It's not something we keep coming back to. What we keep coming back to is tuition. And I think the law schools have won <laughs> in this game because that's what they talk about. They always talk about tuition, but undergrad always talks about cost of attendance. Cost of attendance, yeah. And I, I think, think only because they're because required. Dorms, uh, dorms are so common in yes. undergrad right yes and because so it's they like want you're just moving out of your folks house and you need housing and so you have to really think about total cost of attendance when you're thinking about an undergrad school well and they require you to right most schools require oh at some schools freshmen have to live in the dorms yeah, yeah, yeah it's quite a few actually i think freshmen and sometimes sophomores <laughs> so they can like tack on the real estate scam on top of their um 100 you know, <laughs> on top of their tuition scam yeah uh wow okay Anything else about this or should nope. we move on? Okay. <laughs> <Hopefully>. <laughs> yeah. This next one's from Spencer. All right. Spencer says, hey, Ben and Nathan, I was browsing LSD.law and realized that some schools appear to have a predetermined scholarship amount based exclusively on LSAT and GPA. For example, at Wake Forest, a 167 scorer will receive $95,000 with a GPA below 3.0, $105,000 for a 3.0 to a 3.39, $120,000 for a 3.4 to a 3.79 and $160,000 full for 3.8 and up. This also applies for LSAT. An applicant who has a 3.8164 will receive $60,000. 3.8165 gets $90,000. Oh my God. So there's, that's a $30,000 improvement for one LSAT point. Holy cow. And $135,000 for a 166. So that's another $45,000. Wait. So that you go from a one, you go from 60 to 135 in two LSAT points. Oh, 3.8164. So apparently they have a $75,000. $75,000 for two LSAT points. I've oh, been saying okay. for years that I think each LSAT point is worth at least $10,000. 
at Wake Forest, the right two LSAT points are worth $75,000. Holy cow. Almost $40,000 a point at Wake Forest. If you're at that precise point on their matrix. Sure. Furthermore, says Spencer, there appears to be a point of diminishing returns after 167, 168. Essentially, scholarships are directly determined by the intersection of one's LSAT and GPA. Wake Forest University is far from the only school doing this. I only singled them out because I will be a demon deacon this fall. I've linked the data below for y'all to have fun with. Maybe it can be useful to make the scholarship estimator even more accurate. Spencer, did you know that the Wake Forest mascot is the demon deacon? Literally the demon deacon? Demon deacon. Oh, no. Yeah, I might have to get myself some Wake Forest gear. I'm going to look into that Um, because I love demon gear. So, yeah, maybe I'll get maybe I'll start becoming a Wake Forest fan. Anyway, um, wow. Elsa L L sorry, LSD.law slash school slash. Well, I'm not going to read the whole URL, but go to LSD.law and look up Wake Forest or click through our show notes and you'll be able to get to this LSD.law page on Wake Forest. But I have heard about this before. Haven't you been that there are some schools where they just have a matrix? Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, at least there they're being forward about it. <laughs> showing <laughs> yeah, people they're not they're not changing based on the individual's uh, ability to negotiate or whatnot. They're just like, yeah, this is what we're paying for these numbers. That does seem more fair, right? It's like, okay, I understand that you're not going to, I mean, it would fair est would be charge all applicants or charge everybody that you admit the same price. (laughs) Yeah. At least make it so that everybody on campus is paying the same price. Yeah. If you're not going to do that, this isn't bad because then at least it's, you're not like tricking people. You're not hiding the ball. You're like, yeah, well, if you would have got two more LSAT points, we would have charged you $75,000 less. Yeah. So then you can decide whether you want to take that offer or go back and work on your LSAT and reapply in the next cycle. Yep. That's interesting. Thanks, Spencer, for writing in. Yeah. Next one's from Anonymous. The subject is transferring down because of a dumb decision, parentheses, crippling debt. What? Interesting. Yeah. Hello, Ben and Nathan. I signed up for the demon to study for the LSAT. I went from a 138 to a 161. While I did agree with your advice and mantra, don't pay for law school, I regrettably did not take it. Hmm. I turned down many full ride scholarships at lower ranked law schools with the belief that the reputation and connections of a higher ranked law school would take me further. I'm guessing that did not work out. Yeah, let's see. However, I've come to realize that I want a regular public interest legal job. The amount of loans I am taking out for living compared to tuition is about three to two. So more living expenses than actual tuition at whatever school Anonymous went to. Okay. I attend an out-of-state law school, ranked number 35, but now I really would like to transfer to a, a law school, 180, in my home state with a so-so reputation. Would you recommend this? Even without a transfer scholarship, I would only have to pay in-state tuition but no living expenses since I have family in the area with whom I can live. I have a strong feeling that reducing my debt and passing the bar is way more important than an expensive degree. I'm a 1L and I did so-so my first semester. I also think I would like to transfer to to get a fresh start from my academics as I understand it, my grades will not apply to my final record once I transfer. 
What? I have never heard of anyone doing this. This is new? Yeah. Minimizing expenses sounds great, always. Yeah, and You're it sounds like You're not doing big... well at that mm-hmm. school anyway. A school that's ranked in the mid-30s is not a golden ticket to anything. If you go to that school and you do so-so, you should not expect very appealing job prospects. And if you're specifically saying that you want to work, if you want to work in a regular public interest legal job, I'm thinking public defender. If that's what you want to do, then yeah, I, I absolutely think that you can go to a school that's ranked 180th instead of a school that's ranked 35th. What benefit is there from, does it, is there even any benefit then to going to a higher ranked school if that's what you want to do, like a pretty mundane run of the mill average, you know, that's like a blue collar lawyer almost. Yeah. Doesn't seem like it. Cause as long as there are those kinds of jobs, wherever your law school is located, then it seems like you can get them. Yeah. If you want to work in your home state, if you want to work in the area that that school operates, I would imagine that that school places people in these kinds of regular public interest legal jobs all the time. Now, you're not talking about working at the ACLU and doing impact legislation, right? You're talking about normal public interest legal job, which again, I think that that means public defender or that type of thing. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that there really is any advantage to going to a higher rank school. I mean... Probably it makes sense, right, to do your due diligence and reach out to the school and say, hey, connect me with people who have public interest jobs who graduated recently and just talk to them. Say, hey, how hard was it to you for you to get a job? What do you recommend? What's the area like? Yeah, specifically um, the type of job that you want. Yeah. And not somebody who graduated from that school 20 years ago, but somebody <laughs> who graduated from that school two years ago. Yeah. Who is now working in public interest and ask them, how high did you finish in your class? How hard was it for you to get this interview? How hard was it for you to get this job? If I come back to this school and I do like, okay, you know, cause your demonstrated success in law school so far, you know, you did so, so you say at a harder school to compete in. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to go to an easier school to compete in, but you know, you you've don't got, know what's going to happen. Yeah. You, it could be that you're like just kind of so-so at law school. And so you might do kind of so-so at this school as well. If you do so-so at this school, are you going to be able to get the job you want? Cause there is another option, Ben. Dropping out. Just drop out of law school. Uh, people hate to hear that. But nobody's forcing you to be a lawyer and these regular public interest legal jobs that you think you're going to go get, you know, they don't pay a lot. They do have a more civilized lifestyle. You will get probably benefits. It'll be a government job. It'll be like probably pretty reliable. Yeah. But it's not like you're going to be killing it. And maybe you're going to be throwing good money after bad by even paying in-state tuition, you know, like. Instead of paying in-state tuition at this school and grinding it out for another two years of so-so law school performance in order to get a so-so JD, in order to get a so-so legal job, 
could also drop out and go to work immediately and start making money. Yep. Instead of and paying do something else. even more, even though it's less, it's more <gasps> over the next two years. Missed opportunity cost. And law school would still always be there. You know, like you would have to acknowledge when you reapplied, you would have to acknowledge that you had previously started law school. But you could always just say, I had personal issues. It wasn't the right time for me. That's why I'm reapplying. Yeah. If you study more and get better than it. Well, even it sounds like you got multiple full ride offers your first time through. So I think the transfer is going to result in probably no scholarship. Reapplying might get you those scholarships again. Yeah, I was curious about that. Is there transfer scholarships? I think there tend to be scholarships if you're if you have the ability to transfer up. You can use that to get a scholarship at the current school you're at. Interesting. Well, I'd love to but, know more about that, because if there are transfer scholarships, then maybe you could apply to other schools for transferring. But yeah, I just don't see the incentives for law schools there as much other than to fill a yeah, seat. They're, they're not going to get to report your LSAT because you're not, you're not part of their new admission class. Hmm. Like, I think this applicant has pretty good LSAT, pretty good GPA for the kinds of schools that we're already offering them a scholarship. Hmm. But the school isn't like, that's not going to maybe do as much for them because they're not going to be able to report that on their data. Like it's not going to make their medians go up. So I'm not sure that they actually would offer you a transfer scholarship for your 2L or 3L year. So then we know, I guess, that the U.S. News and World Report ranking system doesn't use 2L, 3L scores. I assume that they use what's on the 509. Yeah. And the 509 is always reporting the 2023. Well, I'm looking at a current 509 and it says 2023 first year class. Okay. And it's listing their first year students and it's listing their first. Yeah. Those students LSAT and GPA. Yeah, you're right. Okay. So I assume that us news is going to do the same way. Cause otherwise where is this LSAT ever going to get reported? I don't think it is. Yep. Yep. All right. Okay, so it sounds like there's two good options here, right? Go, <laughs> pay less, or two, um, drop out. But before you go, check with local attorneys. If this school can't get you one attorney who has a public interest job, I would be nervous. Again, not someone who graduated 20 years ago because yeah. it's just different. That's a different time. I want somebody who graduated in the current hiring climate who is working in a job that you want, like you can see yourself doing that job, who went to that school, <laughs> and hopefully someone who was not valedictorian at that school. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like is the average graduate at this school getting the kind of job you want? And if not, then drop out is a clear option. I think staying at the school you're at is a really bad option. You're not doing well. You're going into way too much debt. I think if you stay there, you're definitely throwing good money after bad. So I think transfer down is an option. I think drop out is an option. I think either of those are better than continuing to get essentially ripped off, right? If you go to law school and you do poorly, you're getting ripped off. Is that, can I say that as a blanket statement? You agree with me? Oh, hundred percent. And I mean, we've said this a million times, but unfortunately the ripoff gets worse, the more likely it is that you're going to do poorly. Yeah. 
You're, and that's why it's so bad that the law schools charge everybody a different price via these grants and scholarships, mm-hmm. because they're just they're giving the people they're giving the rich and the, you know, the, the people who are, are they're giving you a scholarship because they think that you're going to be successful. You're going to make the school look good. They're not giving the people scholarships who they think are not going to be successful and who are not going to make the school look good. Yeah. And guess what happens? You know, it's just a fact that poorer less white people graduate from law school with more debt and worse job outcomes. So if you're like, that's why we are always yelling about like, just don't go pay full tuition. Don't go pay even half tuition at a law school. If a law school offers lots of scholarships, you want to be on the better half of their scholarship offerings, because if you're not, you're positioning yourself for failure. And You know, that sounds like that's what Anonymous did. And it sounds like after one year of law school, Anonymous is acknowledging, oh, wow, I positioned myself for failure and I am kind of failing Mm -hmm. because I'm just doing so, so well, yeah, I mean, your job prospects are not going to be great. And every, the, every day you stay there, you're just paying more and more tuition and going more and more into debt. So (laughs) I would say default presumption here is drop out. If you can transfer down and make that economically feasible, then yeah, that's another option. But just do not keep doing what you've been doing. Okay, two more items. Tips from a departing demon. This is when people unsubscribe from the demon and we're sad to see you go, but we ask you to offer tips for other demon students. What's Rick say? Ditch every timeline that you have created in your head. So stop thinking about when you're going to apply, stop thinking about when you're going to take the LSAT, let go of all those Stop. stop thinking about how long it's going to take you to prepare. Just let go of all of those things. All right. Yep. Study at least one hour, six to seven days a week. Agree with that. Trust the process. Practice some form of mindfulness slash meditation slash spiritual fulfillment. Have a life outside of this test and work. Love it. Stuff we say a lot. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure how much Rick improved. Um, thanks, though, for that advice, Rick. Best of luck to you. Word of the week time. Listener Kate ran across the word milk toast in an Atlantic article. Hmm. The sentence reads, the ad had the milk toast, milk toast, as spelled not in a way that I would spell milk toast, but Okay. The ad had the milk toast gleam characteristic of media generated by AI. Milk toast to me, wow, that sounds like like something around the edges. What is milk toast? I thought it meant like shimmer. No. I mean, you're just looking at the word gleam there and trying to think that that's what milk toast means. But I thought milk toast meant like mundane. I thought that it What meant, the hell um, is milk toast? Because it's I not spelled it M-I-L-K. It's M-I-L-Q-U-E. Yeah. I, I, I think I could be wrong, obviously. We're going to look it up here in a second. But <laughs> I thought that it meant generic. And when I, when I think about media generated by AI, like have you seen mm-hmm. some of the videos that um, ChatGPT is spitting out now just recently? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I saw a video just yesterday on YouTube comparing the old 
Will Smith eating spaghetti video that was generated like a year ago. And it just looked like wildly janky. Yeah. I mean, it was still kind of amazing, but it looked wildly janky. Yeah. And then comparing that one year later to the videos that now a, a simple text prompt can generate pretty fucking amazing videos. Yeah. But I'm thinking about the uncanny valley here. Cause that still hasn't re- like, you can't really, it's still like the humans that don't quite look human. Like you can just kind of tell that they're robotic. Yeah, sure. Sure. I think what I would think here is that milk, milk toast means something like generic. Hmm. Okay. Let's look it up and see how wrong I am. Huh. Okay. So I did the right click and it says a timid or feeble person. That's as a noun. Okay. Here it was used as an adjective, and the mm. definition that I'm getting from Safari anyway is feeble, insipid, or bland. Example, a soppy milk toast composer, or he ran a milk toast campaign, or some think he is boring and milk toast, but I like his professionalism. Yeah, so boring. Yeah, feeble, insipid, bland. So then to go back to this Atlantic article, that's not a word I use often. I don't ever use that word, but I would have read that to mean kind of pathetic or lacking flavor, bland. Yep. Oh, lacking flavor. And yeah, milk toast. Sure. Okay. Milk isn't the most flavorful thing. Toast is not the most flavorful thing. If you sop up toast in milk, it's not, it's going to be kind of a bland sort of a thing. Why is it spelled that way then? I have no idea. So that's actually referring to milk though. I think so. It's pronounced like that and it means everything that's like that. To go back though to the original quote, the ad had the milk toast gleam characteristic of media generated by AI. So like basically boring gleam and insipid or bland or feeble gleam where it's like at the, at, it's like shiny, but it's also boring at the same time. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Kate, for sharing that word of the week with us. Be LSAT famous. Please ask us questions or share news with us at thinkinglsat.com uh, or on socials at LSAT Demon. Questions about the LSAT Demon, you can email help at lsatdemon.com. Please check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode 443 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.